invite you to turn to the fourth gospel, the gospel by the Apostle John, the, as it was referred to when he was urged to write another gospel many years ago, uh, the spiritual gospel. We're standing at Mount Vesuvius with this gospel, not wanting to be redundant and repeat the genealogies and all of those that we find in the synoptics. Here now, we, he starts, he couldn't start with a more profound topic that he begins with than he does with the concept of the Logos. That is his opening gambit. This, these are the opening words penned by the Lord's human service, servant to bring about his word for all time. And that is to reveal himself through this gospel. And it's, it's quite uh, an arduous task by an exegete to go from the historical book of the record of Acts, the record of the founding of the church, the record of the Acts of the Apostles, which is a historical information, travelogue after travelogue, and come into this profound gospel. We're not starting with a genealogy. We're not going to hear the parables. We're not going to uh, see many of the things, John not seeing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it fitting or, or needful to repeat things that have already been well stated and around for decades. He's writing decades later. He's been in Ephesus, Ephesus a number of years. Emperor Domitian has uh, put him out on the Isle of Patmos. He's out there for a number of years, and then he's released under the following emperor as soon as Domitian steps down and Nerva is now the emperor. He's back in Ephesus again. And somewhere in those times, he's, he's writing the gospel of John. He's writing the revelation and so on. So this book, uh, this gospel has been very, very profound as we've probably have arguably some of the most profound, deep, theology in terms of the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And then another thing that is a common theme for John, of course, is found in the word believe. That is one of the most common words throughout his gospel. He is, we are literally looking at standing over the revelation of Jesus Christ as no less than deity himself, God himself. And then we're charged with something else. Believe. Simply believe. So from here forward, that's what we're going to unpack as we go through the chapters that follow. We're going to be seeing him in him. He is now uh, manifest, God manifest in the flesh. We see in chapter 1, verse 14, he's dwelling among them. We're going to see which accounts John does feature I won't recap the, that again. I've recapped that before, and you can look to those introductory. This is, I think, our fourth sermon since we started. And um, this is going to be slow going, folks. It just is. There's just too much here. As I found myself taking one of the deeper dives that I've taken exegetically in, in a book that I've gone through verse by verse. This is profound. It's powerful. It requires our, our fastidious attention. We have to rivet ourselves to what's being said here. Because out of the blocks, he wants our attention. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. He was 
in the beginning with God. So it's repeated again in verse 2 after you get past verse 1, which demonstrates, of course, in the beginning was the word. The word you're, you, you, you need to stop and drop anchor at the word was. You mean before all creation, he was. So he's preexistent. This is an eternal entity, whatever this logos is, and he's, as he's going to unpack that. But not only was he eternally before the beginning of all things, he was with God. He was. So now we see relationship. This entity is in relationship. This logos entity, which was nothing more than an entity to the philosophers, it took John to give that entity personhood. And so you see his deity in the third clause of the first verse, and the word was God, but then the word he, his personhood. So he's a personhood. He's a person with a capital P that is in relationship with others that they themselves comprise what we know to be God. This is, this is within the first few words of this gospel. My goodness. Hold on to your hats. This concept of the Logos that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now is he chose, John chose one of the most common, commonly discussed among the Grecian philosophers, beginning way back with Heraclitus in 500 BC, all the way up to Philo. And he's an important character because he was a contemporary, roughly speaking, with John. He was the uh, Hellenistic Greek Jewish philosopher that started to recognize who the Greek philosophers were talking about. He started seeing him show up in their scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, but now written in Greece, Greek some couple hundred years before Christ because the whole known world at the time around the Mediterranean was Hellenized when Alexander the Great went through. Now they have a common language, a common Koine Greek. So now Philo is taking what the Greek philosophers have been talking about for literally hundreds of years, from Heraclitus to uh, uh, Plato to Aristotle, the members of the academy as it's referred to, all the philosophers that gathered around Plato and his student Aristotle and talked about the Logos. They knew that there was something that had that comprised a universal mind, something that gave unity to this universe, gave order to it, gave mathematical precision to its functioning. There's more than that with this concept, and they all start with a capital letter. Reason. A divine reason. There's wisdom. There's whatever this entity is, it's willful. But the Greek philosophers never could come down on personhood, that this is actually God, the God that the Hebrews worship. Well, Philo recognized that because he saw an expression that occurred 240, 245 times in what we refer to the Old Testament. The Word of God. The Word of the Lord. Over and over repeated. And especially where that concept, he started to see emerge from that, the Logos. But now John's sitting there reading, so to speak, Philo, and he's like, 
you're not there yet. You're almost there. It's God, all right. The God of the Old Testament, the Jew, the God of the Jews, absolutely. But he's here. And you're about to find out that you killed him. But let's start here, shall we? Let's start with hundreds of years of a concept that has been bandied about among the brightest minds ever, but never arriving at the truth, the full truth, just conjuring up the vestiges of what remains in the fallen image of God in these Greek philosophers. They still have a measure of reason. They still have a measure of ability to apply logic and so forth. And they can see only a fool would say what? There is no God. You finding yourself in Romans 1? Yeah, but that's a New Testament book, right? So this is John defining who that was, that well-known entity. In verse 2, he was in the beginning with, so personhood in relationship. What is this? Well, we're moving along, aren't we? Verse 3. All things were made through him. This is definitely a person we're talking about, capital P for sure. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, we do come at this moment, and we pause in our minds. Our minds are already whirling. You've got them turning. Uh, you challenge us, O oh Lord, to, to find out what this means, to have our mind coupled with the mind of Christ. That you have given us the mind of Christ, as the Scripture says. This is profound indeed. Help us to understand this that has been disconnected for years, this and this alone gives us truth. This light, this life gives us true reason, true wisdom. It defines life for us. It gives meaning to life. It gives us knowledge and understanding. We would be foolish, those of us who truly have been regenerate, who have been reconciled through the Lord Jesus Christ, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We would be so foolish, O oh Lord, and neglectful, to say the least, to not avail ourselves of the very mind of Christ. Help us to do that, O oh Lord. We say humbly, we believe we've so very little perhaps accessed it, which you've given us so generously. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this whole concept of epistemology and uh, ontology and cosmology and all of those high-sounding words of the philosophers, but they're important ideas because we get our study of the world as it is. We get the, the, the study of the, our source for, for knowledge and truth and understanding. Uh, from these ideas that we'll be looking at in a minute. But I couldn't help but um, notice the timing in God's providence that at the conference that we were at this past week, uh, there was a, 
a statement. It was a summary statement by the uh, justice, the Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy back in 1992 when it was Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Now listen carefully to that summary statement. There were actually three justices that signed on to this and which would, of course, continue to give uh, women the right to abort their child. Quote, At the heart of liberty is the core of our freedom. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. You okay with that? Of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, end quote. Which reaffirms, of course, Roe v. Wade. Again, as I said in the first hour, when we were sort of debriefing on the conference, these things all find their root in humanism, fundamentally. This is humanism. You determine what's right for you. That's why we see constructivism in uh, teaching in our schools. Let that child determine meaning for their lives, identity, who they are, the meaning of the universe, why they're here, all those existential questions. You let them make those decisions because it's based upon their experience of life in this world. They're the only authority. They're the ones who should determine what that is for themselves. That's how we got where we are. Are you good with that? That it's really the heart of liberty or the core of freedom to afford to fall in human beings, the quote-unquote right to make these fundamental decisions, unilaterally conceive for themselves what the meaning of life is, to identify who they are. We're contingent beings. We've been created, which would naturally imply what? We have a creator. Should we not consult with him? Yes, he determines what the meaning of life is. But because of the fall, that light, since we're on this issue of light that John has given us here for our topic this morning, the idea of light and life, that light was turned off. Where and when? Genesis 3. That constant, immediate communion that the Creator had with our first parents pre-fall. Immediate means without media. He didn't need media. It was immediate, all around, constant. I don't even know. Can you even conceive of what that would be like? God with us. Oh, by the way, whose name is that? It's Emmanuel. God with us. Whose name is that? Okay, you see what he, come, he came to establish. So that was disconnected. That was cut off. Everything went dark. They got panicked. The first pri, primordial f, uh, emotion, fallen emotion from the first human beings was paralyzing, abject fear. And so what did they do? Because they knew something. They knew something because of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. The knowledge of what? Good and evil. That's disconnected now. And so it isn't very many verses later, one of the, the uh, actually the breakout session that I taught at the uh, conference was Cain, firstborn sinner, an analysis of an angry man. So we see some of the most heinous signs already 
coming from their very first child, Cain. And you know that story. So this light is turned off. Who is this that John wants us to know about? He is the Logos. He is the universal mind. And as he unpacks who he is, the light is available to come on to those who will, what's the one word? Believe. Just believe. He's done all the heavy lifting, right? Just believe what's being said. I remember, and many of you have heard this, I've mentioned this a number of times over the years in the church, but uh, in my experience, back in the 1980s, I had a brother who was saved, and, he, and I wasn't, and he's, read, just read the Bible, just read the Bible, just read the Bible. It's not that people that are sin-darkened can't be saved by just reading the Bible. I'm sure there's those testimonies, but it wasn't going to happen for me. This was nothing but words on a page. They meant nothing. Nothing. I was dead and blind spiritually. Something had to happen. Something happened to hap- had to happen, and you know the rest of that story is my testimony. So the light is reestablished now. He is life, and the life was the light of men. It's nearly synonymous in this use here. Nearly the same. It's the light and the life. You could say the light came and we had life, couldn't you? Christ is the light. He is the life. Amazing, amazing. So God, in this gospel, the veil is removed. We have the Holy Spirit who brings the mind of Christ to the surface and Christ himself stands before us and is revealed. We can see him by that light. He was chosen in his love and his grace and his goodness to reveal himself to us through the pages of scripture that are now illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And as we go through this, we should expect that we will stand before the glorious face of our Lord in Jesus Christ. Christ. Just a small task. Let's start with two words this morning. God speaks. So we know that God speaks. That's, that was the understanding of the Logos, that, that this divinity, if you want to call it that, I don't know which of the philosophers would have been, the Greek philosophers would have been comfortable putting it that way, but he communicates He communicates. So he speaks. And so Psalm 119 verse 30 says, The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Yeah, that's me. That's me. Simple yet thinking we're what? Wise. You in Romans 1 again? Yeah. So we... We have the light come that reestablishes true and right and accurate. I mean, with specificity, the lights come on. And I knew what that was like for me having come to Christ as an adult. It's like you're seeing for the first time life in full spectacolor instead of some murky, mucky, monochromatic gray. It explodes with detail. It's sharper than 2020. You can see things now because that understanding has been enlightened by the mind of Christ. And so 
We have that communication reestablished. It's remarkable. Unfolding of your words gives light. This, is, this word unfolding, you could say unveiling. Those who have the word opening, that's, that's not the best version. This is, as Joseph Addison says, the clause does not refer to the mechanical opening of the book by the reader. Follow this. But the spiritual opening of its true sense in divine illumination to the mind, which naturally cannot discern it, end quote. It's not Mark coming to the Bible, this hard copy of God's words and reading these words. Something has to happen where? In the cabeza. Good, he didn't fall asleep. <laughs> in your mind, in your head. And then it makes that, that descent into the heart. The more the understanding is increased, the knowledge is increased, capital K, gnosis, epignosis, you form affections in your heart for him who is now revealing himself to the one that he came to save. How's that for profound? Wow. Colossians 1, 5-6, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, of the truth, the truth. Definite article there. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. It's a spiritual enterprise, isn't it? that he's talking about, yeah, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood and the grace of God or you understood the grace of God in truth. You couldn't have possibly done that, arrived at that on your own. It's in the hearing, right? Romans 10, it's in the hearing of the word as it's preached or as it's spoken to you. The gospel is delivered. The power of the word coming into those that he has regenerated, that he has brought to life so that those words now make sense. This cross and him crucified is nothing but foolishness to those that are perishing. Yeah, It always will be. Don't fault them. Just because we have reason is now reestablished. We have truth that comes down from the divine mind himself. We shouldn't find fault, should we? I'm glad people had patience with me. My family had patience, so the ones who were already regenerate. It's like, well, that's, that's Marky. He's a little slow. Let's give him some time. Let's keep praying. You find out that there were all those in, in your family or friends or others that were praying for you. Never give up. Don't give up. Didn't give up on me. My brother said to me when he brought me to the church for the first time in Southern California, I've been praying for you for seven years. And I, at, at first I, I was bewildered at such words, at somebody doing such things. And then tears came to my eyes. My life was given. Someone prayed. Don't stop. Growth, here's your first salient point. Growth in true knowledge and understanding, spiritual sight, in other words, is progressive. 
We call it progressive what? Sanctification. That's right. So the growth of expunging or expelling the impurities to make pure takes time and process, right? So we see that. Proverbs 4.18 says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It doesn't just say the light. Why does it, in the case of Christ too, why Old Testament or New, is it the dawning, the rising? We sang that this morning and I thought, brother, that's... That's the Lord showing you where we needed to be in song, yeah? It's a rising. It's a rising. And you can see that in that wonderful passage by Peter in 2 Peter where he says that we have the Word of God made more sure. Which you would be doing well to give your attention to as this morning Star, this rising dawn arises in your hearts. Pay attention to the word. That's the means of your progressive sanctification or becoming like Christ. It's absolutely remarkable. But that's his means. There is no other way. We can see that in one of the stories from one of the synoptic gospels, Mark chapter 8 with the blind man in Bethsaida. You remember that story? It's an interesting story, isn't it? Why did Jesus do cure this blind man this way? You know the story. Let's read it. Verse 22 to 25. And some people brought him to a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, does the Son of God need to ask that question? Does he lack knowledge? He's going to make a point. Jesus, you have my attention. Speak on. Do you see anything? He looked up and said something actually very interesting, right? I see men, but they look like what? Trees walking. Why is that included in the Scriptures? Why did Jesus do things? This? Did he have the power to heal someone fully, completely, instantly? Of course, we see that over and over. Why this? He's making a point. This sight that you regain in these regards that we're talking about is gradual. Your eyes are opened. You're gaining more knowledge. You're gaining more wisdom. You're gaining more understanding, more comprehensions in, in the more, in the, in the full panoply of the scriptures, in all of the scriptures, what it's all about. Every time I go back to the word to do the work of sermon prep, more connections happen. That's why the analogous scriptura was so important to the Puritans and reformers. They say, let the analogy of scripture answer the scriptures that are tough to understand, right? So the more you grow in the knowledge and the understanding of scripture, the more it starts to make sense, the more it starts unifying, the more it starts consolidating. It's absolutely amazing. So this is what I think, at least in part, is the point here. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on him again. Did he not have, was it like partial power or something to begin with? He just, batteries running low. I don't know what's going on here. Well, he was a man too, so maybe he, no. No, there's a very important point here. He laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. 
And he saw everything clearly. Why would it feature this story with this information? If not to tell us that he is at work in us, we participate in that work in that we access the word of God. And through prayer, we commune with that God. Now that that prayer, if in fact you are in Christ, I don't want to make that assumption, there's some of you here who may not have reconciled with God through Christ. You may just be here because your parents are Christians. You may have been raised in a church, so therefore you check that box, you're good. But you don't know him in this gnosis way, this, this epignosis, this deeper intimate knowledge that includes powerful love and affection that forms in the heart. And you're like, what are you talking about? If that's you, that you want to think about that. Because the last thing you want to hear comes from Matthew's gospel, chapter 7. What are those words? Depart from me. Why? I never knew you. Critically important. I didn't know him before. I could have maybe learned some things out of this book. And, and quoted them. I, I went to church with my brother a time or two. I, could have, I, I probably checked that box on an application. But the mark of a true believer, their affections have changed. That's why I've said in the past, I, I don't have any regard for the merriments or the entertainments of this world. Now, if you knew me before, <laughs> yeah, says my lovely wife. Affections have seriously changed. And when we went back and I had to officiate my own mother's memorial service last month, people were like, is this Mark? Is this him? And some of you were here, I think, was it a Wednesday night? I read that thing that my brother wrote where he repented of how he had looked at me before. And God opened his eyes because of what we're talking about here. These principles through his word and by his spirit, our eyes are opened. This is by degree. It's progressive. You remember second Corinthians three eighteen, right? We all with unveiled face. So the veil is lifted. Now the unveiling, as we saw it from Psalm one nineteen one thirty, right? The unfolding of your word gives light. Now we with unveiled face, we don't have to veil our face like Moses, unveiled face, we're wide open, standing face to face with the risen Christ, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. It is happening right now, and you are passive in that work. That's what the Greek indicates. You are being transformed. That good work I started in you, I will finish, yeah? Philippians 1 verse 6, yes, I'm going to, I'm at, I've got this, we would say. You are being transformed into the same image from what? Degree to degree to degree. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So therefore, Clearly indicating to me that who gets all of the glory for my transformation? God, be careful you don't misunderstand somebody who holds a monergistic view in sanctification. 
Because that, my friends, with plenty of other evidence, shows who is doing the work. While we yield to the Holy Spirit, but He gets all of the glory. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror, what? Clearly? Dimly. But then what? Face to face. I had the express joy and absolute delight to imagine my mother in perfection now, not in that emaciated 78-pound body any longer, in perfection, standing, beholding the face of Jesus Christ. Fix your mind on that when the things in this world and our culture start to get you down. That's where you're going if, again, you know him. If you know him. Now I know in part, then I shall know what? Fully. Even as I have been fully known. He's already known me from before when? Before he invented something called time and created the timeline continuum. Before then he knew me. Every single detail about me. And you as well if you know him. So, Psalm 18, 28, For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. So the second thing I want to say before we look at the verses, the two verses we're looking at today, is God listens. So we know that God speaks, but he also listens. So when that line of communication is restored again in Christ, we can go to him at any time, and we should be going to him all the time. We pray without what? Ceasing. So it's a constant communion. Why? Because that's been reestablished. It's been reconnected. Why would I just think of occasions of praying to God? That's what other religions do. But no, it's a constant state. It's an attitude of prayer all the time. So he listens. So in John's gospel, we learn that we communicate directly with God through prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, and he responds to our prayers. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14, we'll be getting to that soon, Lord willing. John's purpose in presenting the revelation of Christ, you should know by now, is found in chapter 20 and verse 31, as I mentioned. These are written so that you may what? Believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. All right, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This word light in the, uh, life in the Greek, of course, is zoe. Z-O-E. Of course, you all know how to spell that, right? Yeah. We've got a little girl named Zoe. It's used here as an absolute sense of the source of all life. This is all life, this zoe idea. It's directly connected to Jesus, of course. We looked at Jesus Christ as the agent of creation last week. And so that's what we're looking at here with this term. In him was life. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now that's your existential answer. That's, that's your identity. 
That's who defines the existence you find yourself in right now. Your demographics, everything in your, bio, in your whole biography, the whole thing, every single moment of it, in Him. It comes from Him. Anything that's created, not just us, but who we are, we find that in Him. We don't let this world, and we don't trust ourselves unilaterally apart from the Word of Christ, to define who we are. That's crazy. It's also humanist, as I pointed out earlier. Acts 17, 28, For in Him, he's citing Epimenides, the Cretan poet here, in Him we live and move and have our being. That's in Christ. He's there to tell them who that unknown God is. I'm here to tell you who He is. He is the God of knowledge, capital K. You're going to know who He is through His Son, Jesus Christ. As some of your own poets have said, for we indeed, we are indeed His offspring. And that's Aratus, who was a fellow Cilician from Paul's region. So those who are like Him will have life forever. Those who are in him, rather, will have life forever. We have to note that it's, it's an e- we enter into that eternity. And, and that's why, as Ecclesiastes said, God has placed eternity in the heart of man. People, in their, when they're being sensible and reasonable, have to admit they know there's something beyond this life. And for the Christian, it's eternity with him. Romans eleven thirty six in that wonderful doxology for from him and through him and to him all are all things to him be the glory how long forever and you are in him so the life this spiritual life anyway went dark when it was removed because of our sins as I mentioned and now in Christ we have this knowledge illuminated verse five. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Psalm 36, verse 9 puts it this way, For with you is the fountain of life. All life comes from him. In your light do we see light. Excuse me. So light and life, as I mentioned, are, are near synonymous in this context that we're looking at here. And the life of Christ illuminates and animates or brings life to those who belong to him. Anything that is animated, which just means has life from a plant to a fish, to a bird, to an animal, to a human being, all life is derived from him who is life. If, they're not, if it's not his involvement, if he hasn't granted it, it can't have life on its own. <clears throat> so Psalm 56:13 says for you have delivered my soul from death yes my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life. Job 33:38 or 28 to 30 He has redeemed my soul. This is Job now. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit. And my life shall look upon the light. Interesting. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man 
to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. I was intrigued by this short passage, thinking a lot about it, especially the part where he says God does all these things twice, three times with a man. Does what? Brings him, allows him to be in a place of suffering, a place of darkness. But he doesn't leave them there. He doesn't leave them there. So, and I think I left this in your outline. God faithfully preserves through our suffering. He's faithful to do that. That's what Job is saying. Keeping us from plunging into total darkness and death and bringing us back into the light of life. But do we trust him? Do we believe? This is him. Job gets it. He still doesn't fully understand what's all going on with him. He has to be, have things ironed out at the end, go through that rebuke from the Lord. But there's things that he knows that are sound in theology that we mind out from this great account. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. I'm going down, but I will come up. I will be down in the darkness, but I will see again. I will lose hope. I will be to the place of despair, but I will rise up because it is his rising. It is the dawn of the light that he brings and he will lift me up twice, three times. He may do this to a man. This is what Job is saying. To bring his soul back from the pit. You are mine. You remember when we focused on the word possession? He himself was with God. There's possession there. Beautiful, glorious, safe possession. Though the valley, and I'm borrowing from Psalm 23 in this language, but this is important. So this is, this is what I extrapolate from this glorious section of Job. Though the valley wherein may seem like death is imminent, the darkness is only a shadow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He's not going anywhere. We say that to our children. Don't be afraid. He's with you. He's there. The only time a child will panic if they think their parent is suddenly gone without notice. It's just a shadow of darkness. You are children of the light. And He will retrieve you from that temporary darkness. Two times, three times, whatever it takes to get His work done in you. But he's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. His love is unfailing. His love is never ending. His love makes these somehow gloriously his divine appointments for us. So it's not over the trial. It's not around. That's dark down in the valley. Could we just stay on the mountaintops? Let's skirt around. Let's find a trail that gets past this thing. Can we do that? 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. (laughs) I look about, and you've prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Why am I fearing them? You've prepared, God has prepared a table before me. He's set a place for me. I am Mephibosheth. I am the crippled one. And he set me at his table in the presence of whom? Your enemies. Right in the presence of your enemies. You are feasting in the Lord. He's not done yet either, is he? According to the psalm. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. Why? Oh, wow, all this treatment. Are you sure you know my record? Are you sure those things I've done in the dark you're aware of? Are you, Really? My cup, what? Runneth over. It overflows. And so I'm convinced that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's forever. It's forever. Why don't we focus on those things? Amazing passage. John 8, 12, when we come to it, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And everyone that follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of what? Life. Life. John 12, 35 and 36. This is previews for us, folks. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Now we know a little bit more about what he's talking about here. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. So it's possible for somebody to neglect remaining in the light as you follow the light, following Christ. That's a good Matthias anyway. That's a good disciple You are truly disciples of mine if you remain where? If you abide in what? In the Word. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You depart from that? Oh, bets are off. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, Believe in the light. There is words you're going to see repeated all the way throughout his gospel. Believe in the light. Who's the light? Jesus. Believe what he says. Walk the way he's calling you to walk. Herein lies the light. Follow. Thy word is a a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. Did I get it right? Yeah. It's both both the near and the far. He has it all for me. He illuminates everything. Where I'm going, so I don't stray, he keeps me on a right path, and uh, 
I'm watching my daily footwork so I don't stumble. It's a, it's a lamp down there to make sure. Be careful because the way is rocky. You could stumble and fall. Check out Pilgrim's Progress, right? Pilgrim's Progress. So the darkness could overtake you. And that relates to our passage, doesn't it? The one who walks, this is still John 12, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going while you have the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. The, this, this, the son inherits something, right? He inherits this light. Be part of the family. So you have this light. So we come to this word, overcome. Overcome. The light, verse 5 shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. This catalambano in the Greek, it's, there's an unfortunate interpretation. If you have the word comprehend, I don't know how you're going to make a whole lot of sense out of it. I guess the NAS and the, the New King James has that. But it's overtake. It's to come up on and overtake catalambano. Come up and overtake. The darkness can never do that no matter how small your light is. Because no matter how small your light is, when you walk into a completely pitch black, can't see your hand in front of your face, darkness, it illuminates it, right? Does the darkness ever all of a sudden just overcome that small light? So Jesus didn't create darkness, all right? So we have to understand something just... uh, Uh, technically here. He is the light. Darkness is not an entity in and of itself. Darkness is the condition of things when there is no light because the light is the life. So if there's no light, there's darkness. If there's no life, there's no life in it. So it's just, there's nothing. It's empty, it's dark. So he didn't create darkness. This darkness is overcome by the light in every case. The light overcomes the darkness, not the other way around. That will never happen. You remain in the light. As he says in John 8, 12, you will follow me and you will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Right? So, you remember Solomon's idolatry when the Lord had... uh, rebuke him in 1 Kings 11. And the Lord rebuked him. And now he's looking at the kingdom being torn in two. You remember that? Ten tribes to the north. And... But he says something interesting here, I noticed. Just, just in my own devotional reading, I came across this, and it fits perfectly what we're talking about because this one word caught my attention. I hope it'll catch yours too. 1 Kings 11.36, while the Lord is giving him this bad news, about the split kingdom, he says, yet to his son, that's Solomon, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp. Otherwise you'd be going, so David would always have a lamp. What's up with that? What what does that mean? Now you know what it means. That light will continue. Satan tried many, many different ways of cutting it off through the Davidic line. You see that as you read the Old Testament historical books. 
David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. So a lighted lamp represents in the scriptures life in a person. Psalm 132 continues this metaphor, this illuminating metaphor, and as it speaks to the confirmation of the promise, there's going to be a lamp that continues through David. Now listen, this is Psalm 132, verse 11 and verse 17. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. We know that's the promise. Verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout from David. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. So the light in Jesus is eternal, as therefore so is the life in him. Isaiah 60, verse 20, your son shall go down. This is S-U-N. Your son shall go down no more. No more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N again, the Son of Righteousness shall, and here's this concept again, you see it over and over again, even in Revelation, this, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healings in its wings. It's always a rising this illuminating is progressive. The sun, as I'm doing my final preparations, I'm in my study facing east and I'm watching the sun slowly take us from pitch black and to the sun rising on the horizon while I'm doing the final preparation on this sermon. It's just amazing. It's amazing. Rise with healing in his wings, so you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, I want to finish this morning by quickly giving you something that's been, I've been cobbling together from the different reading that I've been doing and studying and so on. Just uh, uh, just a brevity, uh, four points, so that you can have a better understanding. We're trying to really work on this concept, this huge concept of the Logos. So we're going to look at the Logos doctrine, because what this is, is it's the, the reestablishing of the mind of God into the mind of man, those who are regenerate, those who are brought to life through Jesus Christ so first of all, Jesus is the epistemological logos. This is God communicates. Now, I'm getting these from Hebrews, the first three verses. So we think we've had a lot in the first three verses of John. These, this is a whole lot here. Listen, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, first part. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God what? Spoke. How did he do it then? To our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So episteme is the principal system of understanding. You can't understand anything rightly until you access that knowledge that he's made available through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Jesus is the cosmological logos. This is God creates. So 
the source of knowledge. This is God spoke. This is God communicates. This is the cosmos, which is the Greek term for the world. This is God creates. So he speaks, and when he speaks, he creates things quite tangibly, quite physically and spiritually. We looked at that last time in his creation. So that's all. This is the study of the world. It's the study of the created, the creation of God's. That's the second part of verse 2 from Hebrews 1. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, that's Jesus, through whom also he created the world. And we look at that in greater detail last week. This word is aeon, which is ages. It's uh, the entire universe and everything in it that functions. That's the word used here. Three, Jesus is the theological logos. This is that God coexists. It's important that we understand this. He dwells in a coexistence. The God is one, the Hebrew Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, your God is one God, right? So we have one God that in essence manifests three different offices. It says in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, first part, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by His power. So this word for radiance captures the idea of a brilliant light emanating out. So this is the Shekinah glory of God. This is a bright, bright light. This radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, um, this radiance and both that and the exact imprint. This is the only place in the entire New Testament these Greek words are used. Exact imprint of the essence and nature of God in time and space. That's what this is. The exact imprint of God. The essence of God fully coexisting, co-equal, co-eternal. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 Whoever has seen me has seen the Father John 14, 9. So when we see Christ, we see who? God. The Son of God manifest in the flesh as Jesus who is the Christ. Come to give his life a ransom for many. For and finally, Jesus is the soteriological logos. God cleanses. God cleanses. So God communicates God creates. God coexists. God cleanses. We're getting that from three verses. Look at how much we've gained from the first three verses of John's Gospel, and this is just a wonderful parallel to that. Defining who the Logos is is John's task. Defining who Jesus Christ is is the task of the writer of Hebrews. Same task where it says he is the soteriological logos. Soter is the word for salvation, right, in the Greek. It says in the second part of Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This, this is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, 
the Christ who, as Martha said, is coming into this world. That's who we're seeing in John's gospel. That's where who we're newly getting introduced to and having our heads spun around on our shoulders as we're learning. So let me finish with Titus 2, 13 and 14, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Revelation 1, 5, and 6, and we close. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your, for your faithfulness to show us through your word the illuminating work of your Spirit, who the Son of God is, who the Christ is. Lord, I, I pray most of all for those who suspect that they have not known you in this powerful way. And I pray, O oh Lord, that they would seek you now as you are at work in their hearts, revealing yourself to them. You are the payment for all of their sins, for all of our sins. We are filled with gratitude and joy. We have the greatest of all hopes of remaining with you in heaven, full of light and life forever and ever. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.